0: Microsoft Teams is helping a bicycle company reinvent the way that they work.
1: We make bicycles for everyday riders. Once the pandemic hit, we started doing virtual visits. All of a sudden, we could open up our
0: showroom to customers around the world. Learn more at microsoft.com teams. Today on Something You Should Know, the things you should never do with a power strip. Then the quirks of being human. For example, how humans move in a crowd and the human phenomenon of
1: phantom traffic jams. And if you were to look at a phantom traffic jam from a helicopter, the traffic jam itself moves backwards down the motorway. And the speed it moves backwards down the motorway is a universal constant in so much as it's the same speed everywhere in the world.
0: Also, an interesting and seldom discussed difference between men and women. And counting. Numbers and counting may seem simple.
2: And I want people to understand that numbers aren't 100% objective the way we're taught to think of them. They're human judgments. And when people measure or count anything, they have to decide what belongs in the category that they're counting.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. Support for this podcast comes from Lexus. Maybe you're an aficionado, a fashionista, a foodie, or a sneakerhead. But no matter what you're into, it pays to go all-in. Because the greater the obsession, the greater the reward. That's why Lexus went all-in on the sports sedan by designing the new Lexus IS. It's the result of an unwavering obsession that left no detail spared. From a sleek, race-inspired design that's been fine-tuned down to the very last millimeter, to one of the most sophisticated and connected automobile technology systems yet. The result is a sedan that looks as aggressive as it feels. The Lexus IS all-in on the sports sedan. Learn more at Lexus.com slash IS. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi. Welcome to Something You Should Know. I know I usually mention this at the end of each episode of the podcast, but we're on a we're on a big campaign to try to grow the audience and have 2021 be a uh, just a breakout year for us. And you can help by telling people about this podcast and sharing the link with them so they too become a listener and help us grow the audience. First up today, this time of year, the holiday season, is a time when well, power strips come out because we're plugging in lights and decorations and things. And there are some things you need to know about power strips to stay out of trouble. And this advice comes from FamilyHandyman.com. First, never plug a power strip into another power strip. Not only is it against half a dozen OSHA regulations in a professional setting, it can also cause one or more of the strips to fail or even catch fire. Never use an indoor power strip outdoors. While there are power strips that are designed for outdoor applications, unless the strip's packaging specifically says it's for outdoor, it shouldn't be used outdoors. Never put a power strip under a rug. As electricity moves, electrons generate heat. Normally, it's not a problem, but if you put the power strip under a rug or in a tightly enclosed space, it can create a fire hazard. Never plug beauty tools into a power strip. Hair dryers and curling irons and straighteners and other beauty tools all create heat and draw a lot of amperage to generate that heat. Power strips just aren't designed to generate that kind of consistent high amperage. Those beauty tools should always be plugged into a GFCI-protected outlet. Never leave power strips near children. A quick Google search will show you plenty of horror stories about kids putting fingers and toys and forks into outlets. Don't assume they know better. And never get a power strip wet. That should be common sense, but it happens often enough that it bears repeating. Electricity and water do not mix. Don't get your power strip wet or you risk frying yourself and and everything else that's plugged into the power strip. And that is something you should know. To be a human being and function in the world, well, it's full of interesting and quirky surprises, as you likely know since you are a member of that human group. Marty Jobson has taken a fascinating look at what it means to be human and found some interesting and surprising things I think you will enjoy hearing about. Marty Jobson is resident science reporter on BBC One's The One Show. He's been working in television for several years, and he is author of the book The Science of Being Human, Why We Behave, Think, and Feel the Way We Do. Hi, Marty. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. So I I think an interesting place to start here is based on all the research you've done, is how humans behave in a crowd.
1: So this is this is a fantastic bit of science, and I, I was very lucky. I got to speak to and, and and do some work with the guy that that noticed this, and it, it's a brilliant story he told me. I remember. What this is, is that if you take a massive crowd of people and you plonk them in a, in a space uh, that they are trying to exit from, and the, and the classic example, in fact, this is where it was noticed, it was a, it was a Queen concert. And hang on, it was the Freddie Mercury um, tribute concert. And the huge crowd at the end of the concert was all trying to exit through the, the relatively few exits. And if you look at a sand timer, for example what you see is you see the sand in the middle moves the fastest. If you look at a sand timer as it's running, so it as an egg timer, you get a dimple right in the middle, if you think about it. And that's because the sand is moving fastest there and it's flowing down in the middle fastest and it's slower at the edges. Whereas if you look at a crowd going through a small gap, which is kind of analogous to a sand timer, You don't see, in fact, that. In fact, you see the complete opposite. The people who are at the edges move the fastest and the people who are slap bang in the middle, sort of immediately in front of the exit, you move the slowest um, and it takes you the longest to get out of the stadium. And the people who are right up against the walls at the edges, they go the fastest. It turns out the explanation is simple. When you when you have sand, uh, the friction of the sand against the glass wall slows the sand down. So the, fir- the closer you are to the edges of the sand timer, the slower you go. Whereas, and this is a fairly standard law that, that applies to liquids in a tube and all sorts of things like that. But humans, we don't behave like that. We speed up when we're near walls because we. what slows us down in a crowd is interactions with other people. So if you've got people on both sides of you, you're desperately trying not to bump into people you know, all around you and that slows you down. Whereas if you're up against the wall, you can go faster because you're only interacting with people on one side. So if you're literally sort of pressed against the wall, you don't care that you're pressed against the wall. But if you're pressed against another human being, that kind of bothers us. So we that kind of we try to avoid that. So it's this wonderful sort of enigma of, of, of how uh uh humans behave in crowds and crowd behavior is 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 sort of massively important because you know obviously it can be quite dangerous if you have, a, a, you have to get people out quickly. So it, it's changed how people design exits and things like that. It's, it's a great piece of science.
0: Talk about lying, because I imagine humans are the only or one of the only species that deliberately misstate the truth.
1: And, and it's pretty interesting what you say. Um, I, I believe there are examples. I didn't really go into this because obviously this is about being human, but there are examples of, of animals that lie. There's quite a few of them that will deliberately go out of their way to lie and, and, and fabricate uh, falsehoods. But anyway, yes, lying is a fascinating thing. Um, and one of the great things I like is, is that if you ask people, are you any good at detecting lies or are you any good at telling lies, what people generally say is, oh, no, I'm not very good at telling lies, but I'm quite good at detecting lies. So we don't want to admit to being a liar, but we're happy to admit to being really good at detecting lies. And it turns out that both of these are wrong. And essentially, if you sort of average it out, you're just as good as lying as you are as not lying. And it, it, it's, you could toss a die if you're, term- if you're trying to detect a lie and you'd be more likely to succeed Actually, than if you try to work it out. We're all rubbish at detecting lies, um, and um, we're all pretty much average at, at lying itself. But in terms of detecting lies, there is very little you can do from a single statement be able to establish if someone is lying or not. There are no tells are a bit of a myth. You know, it doesn't matter where your eyes look. It doesn't matter if your palms are sweaty or if you stutter or hesitate. None of those things correlate with lying. Even uh, lie detectors are basically, if you want to detect if someone's lying, you have to make them repeatedly tell you the story. You have to just get them to tell you the thing that you're suspicious about over and over and over and over again. And try and make them do it under more and more and more Um, There's a phrase called cognitive load, which basically means you've got to try and make their brain do lots of things all at the same time. Because if they're lying, that means they're more likely to slip up and make a mistake. And that's when you can catch them out.
0: So are there any real techniques that can
1: help you pinpoint a liar? I mean, the two tricks that um, I found the most interesting were, number one, you make them recite what they're lying about Uh, in reverse chronological order or what you think they're lying about so you know if they're recounting some event you say okay now tell me that story but in reverse chronological order so backwards and that's much harder if you're making up the story as you go along and the other one is you ask them to look at you in the eyes and we assume i mean you might assume that's because you know you can see into the the windows of their soul or something and tell that they're lying but it's not it's just that when you're trying to think hard to recall something, you tend to look away because our brains are so hardwired to look at human faces that if we can see a human face, it actually makes our, our brains is doing a whole load of work. When we see a human face, it's, you know, we're looking at the expression, we're looking at the features, we're trying to, you know, we're recall we you know, oh, do we know this person? Do we, you know, we're doing all this stuff in our heads. So if somebody is staring at you when they tell you the, the, their statements that you think they're lying about, it makes them do more mental work and they're more likely to make mistakes if they're lying. There's, there's a, some wonderful science in there and uh, there's a lot of mythology as well, which, which is, is fun to sort of bust open a bit
0: human beings like other creatures we evolve and we change but generally those changes are very subtle and slow and we don't actually see them but you say human thumbs are likely to
1: evolve and and so explain why so people of a certain age over the age i guess i don't know maybe 40 or something like that if you ask them to go and ring a doorbell they'll press the doorbell with their first finger you know they'll reach out and they'll bing-bong, they'll press the doorbell with their first finger. But if you ask younger people to press a doorbell, they'll reach out and they'll press it with their thumb because uh, we've become more thumb dexterous, if that makes sense. We're so used to using mobile phones now and thumb typing and doing stuff with our thumbs that we will become more thumb dexterous. And that is going to change. (laughs) And I'm sure that, you know, over time... We will evolve as having more dexterous thumbs.
0: Talk about death. That's that's certainly a topic. Uh, <laughs> talk about death. Yeah, we're all interested in that because uh, it's all headed our way at some point. Um, you talk about the speed of death and and the difference between dead, all dead, and mostly dead. So go ahead.
1: One of the things I wanted to talk about because as, a, as somebody who trained as a cell biologist was this thing called apoptosis, which is a wonderful uh, word and basically this is a uh, something that happens in cells it's called programmed cell death is its sort of its non greek name and this is something that we you you sort of think well oh, this is a bit weird and basically what happens to some cells is they undergo essentially cell suicide they it's a very ordered process they go from being sort of alive and healthy to um disintegrating but in a very ordered way they they sort of undergo Uh, You know, they sort of compartmentalize all the nasty things that are inside their cells, be that sort of nasty enzymes or, you know, sort of um, uh, bits that you don't want sort of floating around inside you. And they get compartmentalized up into packages and then the whole cell sort of regularly and very carefully breaks down. And the assumption a lot of people have is that this is some sort of super rare thing that only happens occasionally, but actually it's happening constantly to millions of your cells. You know, constantly sort of cells in your body are going through this process of cell suicide. It's really important because you've got to get rid of cells that you don't need just as much as you have to grow cells that you do need.
0: Wait, wait. So explain that. What do you mean by you have to get rid of the cells that you don't need?
1: The obvious places that you see this is in development. You know, when you're growing the fingers of your hand, for example, They don't, if you imagine how your hand develops, it doesn't develop as a blob that then sort of sprouts five sticks out of it. It starts, imagine, as like a plate shaped structure. And then the cells between your fingers uh, are sort of removed, they're eradicated, they they die away, they they go through this process of apoptosis. So the structure is sculpted by removal rather than by just growth. So this is a a wonderful process. you start to think about sort of that's sort of on a cellular basis but when you look at death on a on a whole organism basis it starts to become well, it's quite interesting because when is when are you dead what what does death mean what what when do, what do we die from and really what it comes down to is a failure of homeostasis and homeostasis is a process that biological organisms have for maintaining an internal environment because the chemical reactions that make up life you can think of life as a series of chemical reactions they have to have very specific conditions for them to work so that's temperature uh salinity you know viscosity and all those and various other things that you know there's concentration of the various molecules those have to be very carefully controlled and when that starts to break down that's what kills you and actually you sort of go back and you can look at sort of well you think oh well what about heart disease that's a cause of death well yes heart disease is a cause of death but only because when your heart stops that stops the blood going around which means that the oxygen levels drop and it's one of that's one of those concentrations it's that internal um maintaining that internal environment that our bodies are sort of trying to do constantly and when we cease to be able to do that that's what kills us that's what causes cell death that's what causes brain death
0: I'm speaking with Marty Jobson, and we're talking about, well, we're talking about the quirks of being human. The name of his book is The Science of Being Human, Why We Behave, Think and Feel the Way We Do. You may already have thought about making a commitment after the holidays to working out and getting fit in the new year. Problem is, most workouts aren't that exciting. But there's really nothing more exciting and engaging than learning boxing and kickboxing. And that's exactly why people are saying that Fight Camp is the only workout they've stuck with. Fight Camp provides boxing and kickboxing workouts and tutorials that keep you engaged, learning, excited, and motivated. Fight Camp is made for beginners all the way through experienced boxers. You start wherever you are. Fight Camp comes with the best freestanding punching bags available, as well as great quality boxing gloves. Everything, including their unique punch tracking sensors that show you real-time progress and stats on any iOS device. And then, once you have all the gear, you choose from one of six trainers with real fight experience to lead you through the program. The Fight Camp app comes with over 600 workouts and tutorials. Fight Camp offers flexible financing for as low as 0% APR and $0 down. And right now is a limited time holiday offer. Get free shipping and a gift valued up to $109 with every Fight Camp package. Just go to joinfightcamp.com slash something. That's right, get free shipping and a gift valued at up to $109 with your purchase. Bring an authentic boxing and kickboxing gym into your home with Fight Camp. To get your free gift, just go to joinfightcamp.com something. joinfightcamp.com something. As we age, you can start to see it in your face and feel it in your bones. There are creams that claim they'll give you younger skin and energy shots that'll give youthful energy. Let's look deeper, between the surface, on how we counteract the effects of aging. True Niagen helps us age better by supporting the energy-generating engines that exist in our bodies, helping us restore youthful energy. Tiny repair enzymes work deep in your cells to help you recover from lifestyle routines that are hard on the body, including sleep deprivation, or an intense workout, or poor diet. True Niagen supports these enzymes. True Niagen is safety tested, and it's backed by Nobel Prize winning scientists. Age smarter with True Niagen. Right now, new customers can save $20 on a three-month supply by going to trueniagen.com and entering promo code something at checkout. Go to truniagen.com and enter the promo code SOMETHING at checkout to save $20 on your first three-month supply. TrueNiogen.com promo code SOMETHING. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So, Marty, part of being human, it seems, is that we have these common experiences. For example... There is a very common human experience that when you go to the store, the supermarket, and you go to checkout, whatever line you pick seems to move the slowest and I think everybody's had that experience and it does seem odd that we always pick the slowest line because somebody's in the faster line but, but it's not me.
1: Basically the reason why the line is longest or it is more likely to be longer. I mean, you just think about it. Imagine you're in a, a sort of a, an infinite sort of row of queues at the the checkout, you know, the cashiers, and there's sort of loads of lines, and you're in the middle somewhere. You've got a queue on your left and a queue on your right. So obviously there's an even chance of each of those lines being the fastest line. Uh, you could be the fastest The queue on the right could be the fastest and the queue on the left could be the fastest and the one-third chance of each of those. So if you ask yourself, what is the chance of one of the the lines being faster than me? Well, it's going to be two-thirds because um, there's two other lines. So there's there's a bigger chance that one of those lines is going to be faster than your line than there is of your line being the fastest. So in other words, there's a a 66% chance that every time you get in the queues at the checkout, somebody else's line will go faster than you and there's only a 33 percent chance a one third chance that your line will be the fastest and um that's the simple bit of maths but then you start saying okay well why is it that we don't understand that that gets you into the the, the, the biology of numbers and how we understand numbers and how we understand probabilities and we're really bad at understanding probability and chance is super bad at it. I mean, you know, um, most people have a terrible understanding of probability. But then also, psychologically, you you don't remember when the cue is quicker, when your cue is quicker. You only remember the bad stuff. You, you don't remember the good stuff. That's sort of human nature, unfortunately. We don't register when things go right. We register when things go wrong. There's a very simple solution if you want a better chance of your queue going faster, you have to reduce the number of que- queues that you're comparing yourself to. So if you go to the queue at the end of the row of cashiers, there's only one person next to you. There's only one queue next to you because you're up against the wall or something. So there's a 50-50 chance that yours is the fastest queue. So you've just improved your chances by going <laughs> to the edge. <laughs> so it's, it's just simple maths. I'm sure everyone
0: has experienced the phantom traffic jam where traffic slows down for no apparent reason. And so if traffic is slowing down for no apparent reason, it must be, assuming that it wasn't an accident that has since cleared, but it must be just human behavior. It must be the way we're driving or something that is causing
1: slowdowns for no reason. They, they basically just happen when you the road density reaches a certain level. Essentially, what happens is somebody will do something, and it can be very minor, totally trivial. Maybe they change lane. It can be as simple as that. Or they break suddenly for some reason. And then the person behind them breaks a bit more, and the person behind them breaks a bit more, and it goes on and on and on until somebody has to come to a complete standstill. But the really fascinating thing about traffic jams like this is they have a life of their own, And if you were to look at a phantom traffic jam from a helicopter, the traffic jam isn't stationary. The traffic jam itself moves. So the the clump of stationary cars moves backwards down the motorway or the freeway. Okay? So it starts out in one place and then as the cars move from the front, more pile up behind and gradually that lump of stationary cars different cars moves backwards down the motorway and the speed it moves backwards down the motorway is a universal constant in so much as it's the same speed everywhere in the world which tells us that it's something intrinsic in human ability to drive the the automobile that causes this and um, this this thing goes backwards down the road and The simplest way, I mean, people sometimes ask me when I'm talking about this, how do you avoid these traffic jams? There is no way you can avoid them, but you can help your fellow drivers who are on the motorway behind you from avoid them. Um, And the simplest thing to do is to not change lane. Uh, Next time you're on a motorway, just think about this for a second. When you change lane, you are essentially doubling your occupancy of the motorway. So you know, you've got your single car on the motorway, but at, at the point you change lane, every time you do this, you are occupying two lanes at some point, which means that you are taking up and nobody else can occupy either of those, that space in either lane. So you are taking up two lanes of space, your car width plus the the gap in front and behind that people have left. You're essentially going to be taking up both of spaces on both both lanes. So you've just doubled your occupancy. And that's one of the reasons why this uh, changing lanes causes phantom traffic jams.
0: So lastly, in our discussion about the quirky things about
1: being human, dementia and your teeth. So there there is evidence that some of our understanding about dementia and, and what causes Alzheimer's disease specifically, because there are different types of dementia, is not quite what we think it is and there is there are sort of some mavericks out there who think that it's got less to do with the standard explanation the standard explanation which is to do with um, amyloid plaques in the in the brain caused by this rogue protein that's being produced doesn't quite add up and there's one of these it's one of these bits of science where we keep banging our head against the wall of of trying to understand what's going on and we're not getting anywhere so that people eventually start saying well are we are we just banging our head on the wrong wall should we be looking elsewhere and there's a really interesting piece of research that has to do with the bacteria that causes gum disease it, it's pretty complicated so i won't go in too deep into this but basically there is evidence that localizes this bacteria or at least the, ba- the products of this bacteria to the bacterial plaques in your brain and It's just about conceivable that the bacteria that causes gum disease somehow gets into your brain, and that kicks off the process in some people, not in others. We don't understand. There's a lot to be done yet, but uh, so the, the sort of the implication is that sort of you know gum health is good for your brain, which just seems a bit crazy but there does seem to be a bit of a link there um, it's uh, i don't want to put too much emphasis on sort of exactly how much link there is there there is there is still you know sort of other things that are you know good for your brain health and it's not completely stitched up so to speak scientifically but yeah there is there seem to be a link between gum disease and alzheimer's disease and the bacteria that causes certainly one and might be involved in the, in the other.
0: Well, this has been fun. I, I always like poking around and trying to understand what makes humans tick, and it's always interesting to hear the research and get some insight. Marty Jobson has been my guest. He is the resident science reporter on BBC One's The One Show, and he is author of the book The Science of Being Human, Why We Behave, Think, and Feel the Way We Do. There's a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Marty. I-N, as in Nancy, G-E-R. The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, any credit card can offer cash back, but only Discover matches all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year. It's like getting one of those birthday cards that's shaped like cash so you already know there's cash inside before opening it. But in this case, it's stuffed with your first year cashback match, and you don't even have to send a thank you note. Cashback match only by Discover. Learn more at discover.com/match. Discover. Something brighter. One thing you are probably really good at is counting. You just kind of pick it up as a kid. We learn to count. We count things. We understand the concept of counting. And it turns out counting is actually very important in life. And it's also a bit tricky. Here to explain what that means and why this is important is Deborah Stone. She is a scholar who has taught at Brandeis, MIT, Duke, Dartmouth, Yale, and Tulane University, among others. And she is author of the book Counting. How We Use Numbers to Decide What Matters. Hi, Deborah.
2: Hi, Mike. Very nice to be with you. What's
0: well, it's interesting, when I think about counting, I think I probably do it a lot. There's a lot of things to count, either, you know, consciously counting one, two, three, four, or just noticing groups of four or five things. Counting, I do that a lot, but I don't think about it a lot.
2: Well, it's interesting that you say that you don't think much about numbers because I think I've asked a lot of people if they remember learning how to count. And I have found no one who remembers learning how to count. Lots of people remember learning how to read. But we think of numbers as something that's just there. Like you said, Uh, our parents usually teach us the number words and how to count things. And when we are in school we kind of get the idea that numbers there's just a right answer to how many things there are
0: well and a lot of times there is a right answer i mean if you know (laughs) billy has two apples and susie has two apples collectively they have four apples i mean there's no other answer
2: right in order to count you have to decide what belongs to the group of things that you want to count. And that means that you're making a subjective decision to decide what counts. And therefore, your decisions will determine what number you get.
0: So where and what is the concern? I mean, again, if Billy has two apples and Susie has two apples, they have four apples. So you're talking about something else that isn't quite so clear cut.
2: I think we've come to a point where we trust numbers, we think they're more objective than words and stories and anecdotes, and we kind of use them as truth meters. So when policymakers say they want evidence and they want to make evidence-based decision-making, they mean they want numbers. That's what counts as data. And I want people to understand that numbers aren't 100% objective the way we're taught to think of them. Uh, They're human judgments. They're based on human judgments. And when people measure or count anything, they have to decide what belongs in the category that they're counting.
0: So give me a real life example of where this is important.
2: When you count, it's as if you're holding an imaginary clicker in your hand. Each time you see one of the things you're counting, you click. So, the clicker reads out a number, and the number tells you how many things there are. That sounds pretty straightforward, but it's not really what happens. The clicker is telling you the number of times you noticed one of the things that you're counting. Say I ask you to look out the window and count the cars that go by. If you look away for a minute or you get lost in daydreaming, you'll miss some cars. So the clicker really only tells you how many cars you noticed, not the number that actually went by. And now I'm going to make it a little spookier. Um, the clicker tells you the number of times you looked at something and said, yup, that's a car. And I didn't tell you whether to count trucks or, or, and buses as cars. So you have to decide which way to go. Are you going to count them or aren't you? And the clicker really tells you how many vehicles you noticed and you decided to count as cars. So now let's go to the ballot booth uh, or the, you know, the election poll. You're a poll worker and you're counting votes uh, for Biden and Trump, let's say. Um, you, so the first thing you have to do is decide whether the ballot is a valid ballot. And will I count the check marks on here as a vote? So in other words, the clicker is really keeping track of your decisions. It's not keeping track of how many people intended to vote for this candidate or that candidate, but rather it counts your decisions.
0: So, but a a lot of it would also, it seems, have to do with how important this is. So when you're having me count cars, if it was really important and if it really mattered, you'd probably write down the, the criteria. You would tell me if I count trucks or buses. If it really mattered, you'd give me more details and tell me how much it mattered and you'd probably get a more accurate count. But if I'm just counting cars that go by and there's no ramifications of that, eh, you know you'll get a you'll get a pretty decent number but it may not be a hundred percent accurate
2: that's a really good point and the problem comes that we can try to be as specific as possible about say if i'm giving you directions i hire you to count something i care about or i want to know about i will try to give you as specific directions as i can but there were especially for the important political and social problems that we're talking about, like um, health care or productivity or unemployment or how good a teacher is your child's third grade teacher. There's not a completely objective definition of what is unemployment or what is good teaching.
0: Well, that's interesting because, as you say, we're, we're subjective creatures and a lot of things don't really lend themselves to objective, black and white, this is the way it is. There's a lot of nuance and, and subjectivity in it, yet we crave objectivity. We want to know that, you know, 80% of people do this, or 20% of people don't do that. But people use numbers all the time to support their position, and we all know that people manipulate numbers to support their position.
2: So we want We have a craving for objective criteria, and I think that we've put a lot of faith in numbers because they satisfy, they seem to satisfy that craving. I think that numbers can do a better job helping us if we understand they do include subjective decisions. Let's take the um, example of unemployment. And what we see is that a lot of people who don't have jobs and paychecks right now don't count as unemployed. Uh, for example, people who've been furloughed don't count as unemployed in the official government statistics. And people who aren't able to work because they're sick or they're injured or they are have a complicated pregnancy, they aren't counted either as unemployed even though they're not getting a paycheck and they are not working. And they're not counted because in the official definition, in order to count as unemployed, you have to be willing and able to take a job next week if you're offered one. That's the question you'll be asked when when an unemployment survey is done. You might wonder why we have these counting rules that violate most people's sense of what it means to be unemployed which is you don't have a job and you're not getting a paycheck. And the reason we have these rules is because like all counting rules, they're established by people in power and the unemployment counting rules were first established in the 1870s by a Massachusetts commissioner of labor statistics. And it, it was a period like what we're in now with a huge um, financial downturn and tons of unemployment. And there was a lot of political protest by unemployed workers. And the commissioner wanted low numbers. So he, because he wanted to um, quell the protests and tell the people they had nothing to complain about. So he asked local cops. No one had ever done an unemployment survey before. And this guy asked local cops to go around and count the unemployed. And he told them to count only men, not women and children, even though most women and children worked on the farms and factories. And and they were major sources of family income. So people were dependent on them. And the commissioner told the cops, don't count anybody except able-bodied men who really want to work no whiners, no complainers, and no people who are just lazy. That was his real discretionary decision right there in how to count unemployment. That guy, that Massachusetts commissioner went on to become the first head of the National Bureau of Labor Statistics, and he brought his attitudes with him. So the moral of the story is that people count for a purpose. And uh, as you said, they... um, they have their ideas about what is true, and they will count in a way that gets numbers to show that they're right. The commissioner in Massachusetts got low numbers by telling the cops how to count. So that's really the important point.
0: So give me another example, a real-life example of counting and the objectivity and subjectivity and how it works. And Just another example would be great.
2: When you go to the doctor and you complain that you have a pain, you'll be asked on a scale from one to 10, how bad is it? Where one is, you know, I hardly notice it and 10 is I want to jump out the window. I can't stand it. So it's utterly subjective. Pain is a perception. There's no objective way to measure it. Most people I've talked with say they they find that question really difficult to answer when you're in pain. I don't know whether it's a five or a seven or an eight. What, what the heck does that mean, right? Um, just because those numbers are really subjective. And I think when I answer, I think I'm really answering about my pain tolerance. I, I don't know how bad the pain is, but I just know how bad it is to me and how I feel about it. And it turns out that those numbers really help doctors and patients communicate about something that is really hard to put into words. A number of people have told me that when they've had really bad pain and the the, uh, uh, doctors want to put them on uh, OxyContin or something that's really going to make them a space cadet, they understand that if they give a high number – the doctor's going to give them more medicine or the nurse. Or whatever. But if they um, and if they don't want more medicine, they know they should say a low number. I've had people tell me I give numbers in order to communicate or secretly <laughs> strategically uh, how much more pain medication I want so i think this is a it's an everyday example that you know most people will encounter at some point in their life and i think it's a really good example of how numbers can be extremely useful even though they're completely subjective
0: one place where we see numbers used a lot is opinion polls people are asked their opinions about issues or candidates or whatever and often those polls, the results of those polls, turn out to be way off of of reality.
2: There's a saying in um, measurement that sometimes when we try to measure people, the our measuring instrument affects the number that we get. People who wear a Fitbit to count their steps, uh, they they all say that as soon as they put on the Fitbit, they start walking more or climbing stairs to make their goal, right? So the, the fact of measuring themselves or the, the process of measuring themselves stimulates them to change their behavior and change the number that they get uh, because they want a good number, right? So I think public opinion polls are something like a Fitbit in that they, they put an idea in people's head and, and kind of shape the way they think. Let me give you an example. Two examples of um, of questions that have been asked recently in very, very reputable poll organizations. Do you think overall immigrants are a benefit or a burden to the country? That's one question that's being asked. Another one um, that's often asked um, before uh, elections and uh, presidential elections where would you rate blacks on a scale of one to seven where one is lazy and seven is hardworking though both of those questions i find them very shocking because they really stereotype both of them send a clear message and they so the, 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 these public opinion polls are trying to find out what the public thinks about these you know these two issues and both questions as implicitly tell people before they even open their mouths to answer, it's just fine to stereotyp- stereotype whole groups of people uh, like immigrants or blacks. And So even if you weren't inclined to stereotype like this before, the question, when the pollster asks you that, it puts ideas in your head. and And the question doesn't give you a chance to say, I don't think you can generalize about all immigrants. Or I don't think um, you uh, you can stereotype about all blacks. You, sh- you shouldn't do that. So that's an example where I think it's, it's really important to find out what the public thinks. The political leaders want to know what we think about issues, and we want our leaders to know. This is an example where I think it's very difficult to find out what people think. And the measuring instrument, the way you choose to count, can really affect how the answer that you'll get, the number that you'll get. How many people think blacks are lazy? Uh, or how many people think immigrants burden the country?
0: But what if you're writing a book about how blacks are perceived in America and you, you hire a pollster to go find out? That seems like that would be a pretty good question because if you want to know how people are perceived... You kind of have to ask how people perceive.
2: Yes, that's uh, it's really good. And, you know, when I was talking about this in class one day with, and one of my students said, if you want to know if white people think that Africans live in trees, she was an African woman, by the way. She said, if you want to find out whether white people think Africans live in trees, how are you going to find out unless you ask them? So that's a really good, uh, you know, a really good point. But I think even if you want to include that question, you could ask other questions that are designed to get people to think differently.
0: But isn't the purpose of a poll not to get people to think differently, but to find out how they think now, not to move them to think a certain way that fits what you want them to think?
2: Yes, but if you but in those questions that I just read you, they are getting people to think a certain way. I mean, they're built into that question is that blacks can be rated on a scale. You know, all blacks can be judged as lazy or hardworking, right?
0: Yeah, well, I don't think I agree with you because it would seem the purpose of the question is to find out what people think. Now, you may not like what people think. You may not like the answer. What they say in response might sound racist, but that's what they think. And I don't think that by asking people a question, you change what they believe. I, I, I don't think people do that. I don't think they hear a question and go, oh, now I can think that about that group. No, you, know, no, you think no. it's the racist. No, the
2: purpose of the question is to ask people to judge whether they think people with a certain skin color are more lazy then people, the question is also asked about whites and, you know, other groups too. Right. Right. So it's asked about a group. And, and I think that it's wrong to, I mean, I I don't think we can not wrong. It it is wrong in a moral sense, but I think it's wrong in a factual sense to think that you can make and have an opinion that, um, that, all people in a certain uh, group defined by some characteristic other than their work ethic have a certain work ethic that seems to me wrong
0: well all of this this entire discussion goes to your point about how counting is is more complicated and more important than we ever give it credit for because we learn to count as kids and and accounting we do go and And yet there's a lot to it, and it's important to pay attention. Deborah Stone has been my guest. She is a scholar who has taught at some major universities in the U.S., including MIT, Duke, Dartmouth, Yale, Tulane, and others. And her book is Counting, How We Use Numbers to Decide What Matters. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, Deborah. Appreciate you coming on.
2: Thanks, Mike. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. I was looking forward to it, and it's... It was fun
0: An interesting difference between men and women, according to Professor Linda Babcock of Carnegie Mellon University, is that men tend to ask for what they want, and women don't. Professor Babcock has researched this and says, the problem is that in our culture, if you don't ask, you don't get. So women are missing out on a lot of opportunities simply because they don't ask. The good news is that awareness is a big thing. Once women hear this, typically they get it and they're more inclined to start asking for what they want in their personal and professional lives. As the saying goes, there's no harm in asking and there can be a lot of potential reward. And that is something you should know. The audience for this podcast is pretty big, but we'd like to make it bigger, and you could help if you would share this podcast with someone you know so they become a listener as well. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.